I'm featuring this book today, Salvation by Grace, uh, five pounds. It's a great volume. We'll take you through all the doctrine of salvation and the gospel so that you can get to grips with it and study it at depth. You can also go online and sign up for our online Bible teaching on this. And the stewards and anybody at the foyer will help you with that. But I'll come back to that because I'm going to be ministering along those lines in just a moment. But I'd like you now, if you would, to turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans and chapter 3. And we're going to read together Romans 3, 21 to 28. I'm beginning a series today on the four-square gospel. And uh, what is that, you may ask? Well, it is an emphasis that was present in the very foundation of our denomination, the Elam Church, here in the UK. Other groups also in different parts of the world were following suit. So suit, so uh, our full technical legal definition of our title is Elam Foursquare Gospel Alliance. Sounds about 100 years old, of course it is, but it speaks some, some truth. And uh, that, that presentation of the gospel, the key points that were being proclaimed in that Pentecostal revival just over 100 years ago in different parts of the world had a fourfold emphasis. Jesus Christ was at the center and the message was Jesus, Savior, Healer, Baptizer in the Holy Spirit and soon coming King. We're going to be focusing at least on the first part of that today. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 28. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. I mentioned earlier that in the early 1970s, as I became a Christian, was baptized here, Kensington Temple was my home church. I sat where you sit for many, many years, enjoying the worship, praise, the teaching, the preaching, presentation of the gospel. But the KT building of those days is very different from the building we have today. Externally, of course, it's the same. You see that we are presently refurbishing the foyer to continue to modernize and to 
make things as comfortable as we can. We have reshaped the platform many times and behind me is a, a large LED screen. And, uh, but back in that day, it wasn't like that. It looked, it looked like this. Here is a, a photo taken, um, I think late 60s, very, very early 70s, when there was a television broadcast from KT. We've had them every so often down through the years. You can see the very old TV camera there, and I've noticed that the technical people are actually examining that to, as, as a piece of history. Another piece of history is the man standing in the middle. And here is a ginger-haired, red-haired, curly-haired young man who uh, was and still is Lyndon Bowring. And uh, this is the presentation. And then notice behind on the platform, uh, it's very common in those days to paint some text or some epithet or some value system on the back wall as the background. And here we had painted on the windows back there the four-square gospel. Jesus Christ, Savior, Healer, Baptizer, and King. That's the four-square gospel. In fact, we were not actually the originators of that idea. It was a development of an earlier idea amongst many of the holiness churches who also had a four-square gospel. They would preach Jesus Christ, Savior, Healer, Sanctifier, and Coming King. But around the turn of the last century, Holy Spirit began to work and, and restore something that we considered and still consider to be a restoration of the experience of the apostles on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with other tongues. Now, tongue speaking today, you ain't nobody if you don't speak in tongues today. But back in the day, you were, as was often said, a blaspheming Chinaman. Some story go around, there were these people speaking and blaspheming in Chinese. It was all rumors and part of the stigma of that move of God back in those days. Don't think that it's comfortable always to be a Christian. But anyway... They're passed on into more respectable forms later on, and we have the charismatic movement, and now that is the largest grouping of any particular Christian stream today, apart from Roman Catholicism. So it's a very significant movement. And uh, it wasn't that we were saying we don't believe in sanctification, but there was this focus on the present-day work of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, very often accompanied by the manifestation of speaking in tongues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Very wonderful time. And uh, I would like to point out some pluses. Whenever you try to summarize the whole of the Bible into four principles or something like that, you're bound to leave a lot out. But I find this is a very significant statement because it is thoroughly evangelical. It is totally gospel-centered. It is centered on Christ, Jesus Christ, Savior. Jesus Christ, Healer. Jesus Christ, Baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, the soon-coming King. And, uh, but also we notice that it's, it's not just doctrinal statements. Here we're talking about experiencing God. We were singing earlier a rephrasing and a reworking of a, an original hymn by Wesley, which was, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? We kind of modernize that and we sing it, but there is something in that verse there which says very, very clearly what Wesley was experiencing in the revival 200 or more years ago. I, I feel the life his wounds impart. I feel the Savior in my heart. Feel, heart, 
not just thought, not just intellectual belief, not just doctrinal assertions, but a real experience with God, which happens when we come to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. We feel him, we know him, he touches our emotions, it's real. And then when we experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's 100% experience of the Spirit of God that he's given to us. So it touches the whole person. It's mind, body, emotions. It's talking about something that is taking place now, the presence of God in the midst, but also it is pointing towards, as will happen tonight in the preaching service tonight, when we're talking about the second coming of Jesus and how God is preparing us for the future. For we are saved by faith, but we're also saved in hope. We have a hope. We have a future. In fact, the vast majority of our Christian experience is yet to come. This is now just the appetizer. The full thing is happening. So I would put to you today that this These foundational statements are as applicable to us today in our contemporary culture because I can't think of four things more important to talk about as they were a hundred or more years ago. So today we're going to begin with the first of these, Jesus Christ, Saviour. And this is, this message is the cornerstone of the whole of the four square gospel message. Jesus as Saviour is the foundation of the rest. Now, many people today say, well, you know, we know about that. Talk about something else. Let's go deeper with God. You can never go deeper than your foundation. If you want to talk about the very depth and plumb the very depths of Christianity, focus on this. Jesus Christ, the Savior. Why do we need to be saved? What's it all about? What's the purpose of it? What's the point of it? What's the obstacle? That, what's the problem that God has to solve? Can we save ourselves or do we have to depend on him? And what does that mean? And, and how does that change us? Everything else flows from that. I have found in church history that when the church of Jesus Christ in any generation focuses on the gospel of salvation from sin, then the church grows. It's one of the great eras. This year we'll be celebrating 500 years of an event that took place in 1517 in the small German university town of Wittenberg. A man by the name of Martin Luther had been pondering about the gospel, what it really was in an era when the gospel had been eclipsed by various church traditions which were in effect making the gospel message of none effect or little effect He discovered that we are justified by faith and faith alone. And he nailed to the door of the local church 95 theses against indulgences. That's a whole thing. We'll come back to that at some stage. Basically, stuff that was nowhere in the Bible and was being cynically manipulated by various ecclesiastical bodies of the day in order to fleece people from money. And he went for it big time and a great explosion of gospel truth was truth that had been hidden for, or rather at least eclipsed for a little while, had come back into the fore and the whole of Europe was swept through a remarkable revolution of the gospel. And I pray with all of my heart that God would give us a kind of reformation in our Christianity today that would be the equivalence of that. We need a gospel move in our generation. This gospel message is the one non-negotiable element of New Testament Christianity. It is the gospel of Jesus. 
and the gospel of Paul and the gospel of the apostles. And we need to get to grips with it. So this is why we're launching into it today. Okay, let's go. Salvation. What does that mean? The word to save. Well, it's a common English word. has a simple meaning as it did back then. So it is today. It means something like rescue, deliverance, somebody coming to help you out in a difficult situation, maybe saving your life. It also has the idea of restoration, rebuilding, Rebuilding of relationship, restoration of all things. And in one sense, salvation is a global term that will in some way relate to everything that God does for you. It is all about salvation. When we think about salvation and narrow it down to one particular element, which I'm going to do today, which is the basis of the rest, don't forget that salvation is an ongoing process, touches so many things. But I want to talk about the cornerstone message of salvation, that we are saved from sin by the grace of God in order to have a relationship with God. We can present this in three ways. The full process of salvation is, first of all, we are delivered from the penalty of sin. Whereas before we were under the judgment of God, now we're living under the grace of God in a relationship that can never be broken. Freedom from sin's penalty. Then, of course, the Bible goes on to talk about another kind of freedom. We haven't just been forgiven, we've been changed. We've received a new nature. The Bible calls that the born-again experience. And we are in this process being saved from sin's power. The power of sin is broken in our lives that we can live a holy life. And then finally, the consummation of it all is freedom from sin's presence, where even the sin that still dwells within us, that sinful nature that we still have to fight against us, fight against, is going to be removed from us, and we will be holy in the presence of Jesus forever. What a glorious prospect awaits us. So the big question is, why do we need to be saved? You can say, well, we need to be saved because we have broken our relationship with God. And that's true. Sin has entered our life, and because sin is operating, God, who can have nothing to do with sin, separates himself from us. So it's the sin that separates us from God. And as much as you desire, and many people do, to find God, to seek God, to try and find out about him, you will never get over that barrier of sin unless God does something to rescue you. So sin is the big barrier. Romans 3, verse 23, we read it earlier, says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm trying to give you an overview, and I've, I've really got to remind myself that it is an overview because we could spend the rest of the time on this. I want you to notice something. First of all, this applies to everybody. All have sinned. It's not you've got some good people, some bad people, some wicked people, and the wicked, wicked, wicked people, they're never going to get saved. They're going to hell. But the, the, the very, very good people, well, they deserve to go to heaven. They're going to heaven. The rest of us in between, we hope that our good works outweigh our bad works, so maybe God will let us in. And anyway, we're not so bad after all, are we? 
That is entirely natural human-based reasoning and it doesn't have an ounce of revelation at all. The revelation of God is all have sinned. Even the nicest person that you could ever think of that ever existed, that person is a sinner because we are all born in sin. Notice it says all have sinned past tense. It doesn't just mean to say you and I have sinned in the past. It goes deeper than that. It reaches back into the really distant past and it describes what we call theologically original sin. How sin entered the world. Sin entered the world when Adam disobeyed God. And, the, and God said, if you sin, you're going to die. Adam died. And we know that that sin has been passed on in a hereditary fashion to every single member of the human race. If you are a son of Adam, a son or daughter of Adam, you were born into sin, meaning that you had a fallen human nature. As the Bible declares in the words of King David, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, we can spend a bit of time on that, but I think it's obvious that from the very beginning, you don't have to teach a young child to say no. They know, they know how to say no. There is that propensity, that tendency towards sin. Not everybody is equally sinful and evil, but that sinful nature affects everything that we do. All have sinned. And the biggest proof of that is that what it goes on to say next, we fall short of the glory of God, present tense. That is our ongoing present experience. Every individual on the planet, with we, we all know what it is by our own choice, by our own decision to turn our back upon God and we exhibit the behavior of a sinful nature. Now that has certain consequences and we're coming to that. But it's important to see that this message is valid for everybody. And if there is a God, and of course we're beginning with that assumption and realization today that there is a God, and if God loves us, as the Bible declares he loves us, then it is reasonable to suppose that that God would provide a way of salvation. And that's what we're going to look at today. Now let me pause for a moment and tell you why I'm preaching on this today. For several reasons. First of all, I want you to be encouraged I want you to know that this is bedrock. You can stand on this. You can believe this and you will be glad of it in that moment when you take your final breath, morbid thought, okay? But we need to go there to say, what am I trusting in for my eternal destiny? And you can be sure of that for the future, but now you can live in full assurance that you are a child of God, your sins are forgiven, and your destiny is settled. God loves you. You're going to be together with him forever in heaven and all that that means to encourage you nine o'clock service I kind of at the end said do you feel better now which kind of supposed that they weren't feeling good at the beginning of the service but they knew what I meant and they were encouraged I pray that you're encouraged today this is the bedrock this is what keeps you sane this is what keeps you sober this is what keeps you going through life taking all life's knocks knowing that God is with you and the most important question of your eternal destiny is settled I have peace with God hallelujah okay second reason is I'm I want to equip you so that you will be able to, in a very clear way, present 
a simple presentation of the gospel, not just Jesus came in my heart, I used to be a salpus, now I'm a happy Charlie. No, it's something that is real using the word of God to know exactly how to communicate the gospel to others. One of the things I want you to think about, and I prepared notes for you on this, the notes I see are download, downloadable online, and they go up later on in the, in, in the week, but we have uh, photocopies for the cell leaders today, uh, and uh, Scott will be here handing them out, and in this it's talking about a gospel presentation that you share with one another, practice with one another in the cell, somebody's going to pretend to be an unbeliever, and who knows, there might even be an unbeliever there, thank God if you've done that work. Anyway then not just share the Bible, but also share from your experience. I found this to be true in my life because, and then one step more than that, is to be ready for some of the answers or for the questions that you'll be asked. That's why we have that training session uh, early next month. So that's where we, we are heading. So here we have, first of all, what we've been talking about, the need for salvation. Now, why is that so important? You can understand in a way that if person A has offended person B and person A and person B have broken their relationship, then it's a good thing to be reconciled. But you've got to deal with that thing in the middle. Isn't that right? And when we talk about sin today, it's often, it's often used, you know, differently. So we used to talk about when I came in all those years ago, people didn't talk about sin, sin too much. They talked about things like hang-ups. I came to Jesus with hang-ups. That's what it was in, in back in the day. And write that down. It's history. It's a little history for you. History lesson. And we used to have, we used to have more hang-ups than a dry cleaners. And this is how it goes. Now, then today, people have issues. Or, or today, that they come with, 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 uh, with baggage. That's what people say. When I came to Jesus, I came with baggage. All right. Okay. So we can use lots of different words to describe sin. What is sin? Sin is falling short of the glory of God. And that has consequences. Sin separates you from God. You have to have that barrier broken down, that problem resolved before you can have reconciliation with God and before relationship is restored. Now what are the consequences of sin? There's one word that summarizes it all, and we can dig into that and draw a richness of meaning. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Let's pause there for a moment. There is a comma. You can sneak a preview into what the rest of the verse says, which is a lesson in itself. We can talk about sin freely and openly because we have the answer. People who don't want to talk about sin are people who have no answer to it. But we can talk about sin not because we are morbid or negative, but we are the most positive people on the planet. We can talk about sin because we know the cure. If you go and have an examination in the doctors and they do all kinds of tests and they have a negative diagnosis, we have some news for you today. Please sit down. You have such and such a disease, and it's terminal. This disease will end in death. However, however, I'm pleased to tell you that we can treat this. 
It is treatable. And this is the prognosis, and here is the diagnosis, and this is the treatment, and we can guarantee you a good measure of success. So let's get down to dealing with this problem. Amen? Amen. So when we say sin, we don't do it that people live the rest of their lives in guilt and misery and condemnation. We do it because we know there is an answer. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the solution. The one solution. The only solution. For there is no other name given by God by which we must be saved. Hallelujah. But we must take sin seriously. The wages of sin is death. Now you notice, this is what we earn. Wages are what you earn. So when you get your wages at the end of the month, you would say, at the very least, this is what I have earned. Maybe your boss will say, I'm not exactly sure that they've earned it, but that's another perspective. Let's stick to our perspective. That's what we've earned. And when we get the salary, we don't go there, send thank you letters or, or early Valentine's cards to our boss. We say, you've given me at the very least of what I deserve. I deserve more, in fact, but you've given me this because I deserve it. So wages are what you earn. And if you are ever trying to earn your salvation, all you will get is death. If it's talking about what you merit, if it's talking about what you earn, you can be sure that that will end in death and condemnation, which is eternal separation from God. So today, if any one of us has any idea that we can save ourselves or any way that we can earn our salvation or contribute to God's salvation in any way at all, it ends in death. The only way is to abandon any thought of what you deserve because you and I deserve death and begin to think in another term, gospel language. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Heaven is a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. You could never afford it yourself. And if you try to pay for it, you've rejected the gift and all that, con all that consequences of condemnation comes upon you. So, a wage is what you earn, a gift is freely given. And so there is a choice. Either you try to pay the price for your own sin, or you accept that Jesus has paid it for you. And that's the difference between death and life. If you say, I'm, I, I can pay for it myself, you will be paying for it for all eternity, because you will be separated from God forever. So stop that. And this is the natural mind. We all like to think of being able to boast. Even some people who stand before God and say, well, God, you know, I may not, may not have been perfect, but I sure wasn't as bad as X, Y, and Z. God looks at your life and says, yes, my friend, but you have fallen short. And there's no way that we can eradicate the fact that we've already fallen short. And we've got to find another way. And God who loved us has found another way. And it's not just another way, it is the only way as we shall see because only in Christ has God's justice and love been satisfied. When Jesus died on the cross, his blood, the Bible describes as precious. And that's an understatement. How much more, what other words could he use? It is of infinite value. One drop of blood extinguishes 
the flames of judgment forever. The blood of Jesus cleanses from every sin. The only thing that can cleanse your conscience and satisfy the justice of God. That's why there's no other way. Precious blood. God manifested in the flesh. The perfect sacrifice. Sinless lamb of God. Not just for one person, but for all humanity. Why is it so effective? Because it satisfies God's justice. It upheld God's honor. God's character is not impugned. He is both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. You can look at this later. I don't want to go into too much detail, but there's an explanation in the middle of that passage that says, God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins to show that he was just, righteous, and could accept sinners by faith on the basis of righteousness. And he said, you know, before, in God's forbearance, God passed over sins that have been committed. Do you notice that? If Jesus came, you know, at a certain point in time, what about all those believers before he came? Do they, are they saved? Of course they're saved. They were saved by looking forward to the cross. We are saved by looking back to what has happened. But all that time, God saved them on credit. Credit card. You pay later. Well, Jesus was going to pay later. You have it on. I forgive you on credit. He wasn't ignoring sin. He had to come and demonstrate that God's justice was satisfied so that he wouldn't seem to be an unrighteous God because he received sinners into his kingdom. But from now onwards, he saves on debit. We use the debit card. I know it's a crude analogy, but I think it communicates. Uh, The debit card. When you use a debit card, how many people do not know? If you don't know there's a debit card and a credit card, come to the business seminar. It's probably where some of the problems lie. A debit card, you use money that you have. Credit card is something that's going to be paid later. Okay. So, important thing to understand, why is it that God's justice had to be satisfied. A lot of people say, well, you know, you talk about Jesus and and what about other religions? They don't have a cross. And some people even say, we don't even accept that Jesus died on the cross. God would never let that happen to his servant. And, And why is it so necessary? And they use a human example and say, why doesn't God just forgive the way you and I forgive? Where you and I forgive, we don't always ex- try to exact the price. We just forgive. Why can't God do that? You and I don't have that luxury. Somebody has to take out the garbage. All right? We live in a moral universe. A universe that's been created, carrying within it the principles of God's moral nature. God is a righteous God. And there is a moral universe in which we live. The proof of that is you don't need to go very far in anybody's life, Christian or non-Christian, before they will admit to knowing right from wrong. There is absolute good. Absolute. There are some things which are absolutely wrong. You don't need to argue it. Just ask the question, is it wrong to torture babies for fun? Everybody's going to say, no, 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 no. Even those who believe don't believe in God. 
Because in our hearts is a natural understanding of right from wrong. God has placed it there. We live in a moral universe. And if there is a moral lawgiver, then there is a one who upholds that law, God himself, and he must ensure that justice is done. There's no way he can compromise on justice. People who scream out for social justice, people who cry out against all unjust people and call for justice in this world acknowledge that it is absolutely necessary for justice to be satisfied. That's what has driven so many movements for social improvement in our world over the years. Everybody knows that justice is important and justice must be done and nobody knows that clearer than God. Therefore, God who upholds both his moral law and the God who is the judge of all things will set a day of reckoning in which all injustice shall be rectified, all wrong shall be judged. Now we have a problem. The problem is God is just and he must punish sin. But God is also a God of love and he wants to restore us to himself. What is the answer to this dilemma? There's only one answer and that's the blood of Jesus. We have an unpayable debt. If we try to pay it, we won't pay it off for all eternity. So God has provided a way, a way out, a way of escape. He began to instruct about this very, very long ago. In fact, from the very beginning, remember Adam and Eve sinned. Remember that? Okay. And the story is a real story. It's a clear story. It points to something that actually happened. And when they sinned, they discovered as being exposed, they, would, they discovered shame and they tried to cover up their own shame. That's the story of religion. Fig leaves don't work. Don't try it at home. All right, fig leaves don't work. So God said, I will clothe you. And God himself shed the first blood that, of those animals to make uh, clo uh, clothes of fur or leather and it was by the shedding of blood that their shame was covered. And so in exactly the same way, from that time all the way through the Old Testament, the introduction of the sacrificial system, all based on this principle, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Why? Does, why does blood have cleansing power? The blood of Jesus. Why? Because it satisfies God's justice. The sacrificial system was not just about butchering animals. It was about sacrifice, offering to God something that spoke of the Lamb of God who was to come to be the one full and final offering for sin. And all the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, pointing towards the one sacrifice that could. How does it work? Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. Interesting. Death itself doesn't atone for sin. It's got to be a certain kind of death. It's got to be a sacrificial death that is made as an offering to God to understand this 
huge, insurmountable problem. How can a God of justice and holiness receive us into his kingdom? The penalty for sin must be paid. And the remarkable thing is, is that God did it himself. He indicated, I've given the blood for you. This is God's initiative. God provided the lamb for the sacrifice. Some people say, no, I don't like that. It's too much blood. And I don't know if you remember the passion movie, Mel Gibson movie. I don't know which version you, you saw. There are three versions of that movie. 15, 18, and Bible version. The 18 version which I saw was horrendous. I remember having my hair cut at that time. And there was another movie that had been floating about called Kill Bill. Don't know whether it's Kill Bill 1, Kill Bill 2, or how many times has Bill been killed. But, <laughs> and apparently it was a bloodthirsty movie. And my hairdresser was getting very enthusiastic. Kill Bill, this was amazing, this uh, violent, oh, he's, he's rejoicing. And I said, have you seen The Passion? He said, oh, disgusting. Too much blood. Said, Too much blood? Was there more blood or less blood in Passion or Kill Bill? Oh, probably about the same. So I said to him, and this was maybe a turning point in his life. I said, why are you so offended when it talks about the blood of Jesus? Why? Because you see, that hits us on the inside. It shows us how sinful we are that God in Christ had to do that, had to go to those lengths and he did it willingly and voluntarily because he loves us. Other people say, well, it's, um, it's not fair. God can just ignore sin. He cannot ignore sin. Forgiveness always comes at a price. Did you know that? Let me give you an illustration. And I like this idea for a moment. The second half of the story is hard. The first part I like. There's somebody here today that owes me a lot of money. 1,000. Let's exaggerate. 10,000 pounds. Now that thought, I'll just dwell for a moment. Somebody owes me 10,000 pounds, but I choose to forgive the debt and speak to that person. Now there's another people become happy. 10,000 pounds you owe me. Don't worry. The debt's forgiven. They go away happy. But who's paid the price? Who's covered the cost? If you owe me 10,000 pounds and I say, forget it, I have paid the price. When you truly forgive, you pay a price. And this is very, very true in the sight of God. The debt was so enormous, we couldn't pay it, so God forgave the debt and carried the can himself. That's why you can't just ignore sin. That's why you need a savior. That's why you need the cross. That's why Jesus had to die. But of course, he did not just die, but he was raised again from the dead. Amen and amen. To ensure that we got the inheritance. So the choice is either you pay for your sin yourself, unpayable debt, and you will be forever, eternally excluded from the presence of God, or you accept the sacrificial death of Christ. Put your trust in the blood of Jesus. Now, Romans 3, 24 to 25, goes on to say, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This, these words are so amazing. Whom God put forward. This was his idea. God put forward. 
as a propitiation. Now, it's an old word, a long word. I don't mean to uh, be condescending, but it's not a word that we often use today. Propitiation simply means placating, turning away somebody's wrath. In other words, satisfying God's justice. In fact, the blood of Jesus does two very important things. First of all, it does something to God. It satisfies his justice. Secondly, it does something for us. It cleanses us from sin. Both aspects are clear. And so God put this forward. I was listening a little while ago to the late Christopher Hitchens, who's one of the four atheist apocalypse horsemen, as they called themselves. Uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens has now passed away. And uh, he was so incensed, he was incandescent with rage over the very thought that the Christian message has something to do with this disgusting blood stuff and I never asked God to do that, not even necessary, it's just disgusting, you know, the kind of saying God is a cosmic child abuser. And he was so offended at that, he couldn't understand it. And Thinking about what he was saying, this is, this is a, it's a real problem if you misunderstand what the cross is all about. Here's the problem. You know, years ago in the medieval times when there were kings and rulers and monarchs who ruled absolutely and they had princes and princesses and what happened when the prince of the royal house was naughty? Imagine that. So along would come the disciplinarians and say, Prince, you've been a bad boy. Bring your servant. We must beat him. So bring in the servant. And if the prince had been very, very naughty, then the, the, the servant would get more and more beatings. Now, does anybody think that's fair? It's not fair. Well, you say there was... An offense and somebody was punished. No, no, it doesn't make sense at all. That is not what we're talking about here. It is totally unfair of God to punish a third person, somebody else, for your sin. Totally unfair. But that's not what's happening. It is God in Christ himself who took the beating. He carried the can. He said, I will pay. And if God chooses to do that out of his love, he does it because he is the aggrieved party who chooses to take the can, carry the can and pay the price himself. And that is the height of glory and love and it's the defining moment of what love is to the whole of the universe. He didn't punish a third person. Or other people say, well, you know, this idea that God had to do this because he was, he was just like some kind of pagan God. You've got to give sacrifices and offerings to keep that bogeyman away. No, no, no. This is a God of love. He says, I have given you the blood on your altars as an atonement for your life. I'm the one who has put forward this offering. I myself will provide the lamb. And God in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ the Son, died. God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So that's a very important point. Okay, give him praise. So here we go. Here we go. So it comes down to this. We are justified by his grace as a gift. How to be received by faith. 
one death, the death of Jesus, is sufficient for all history, all humanity. But just because Jesus died doesn't mean that you are saved. You have to come to meet him at the foot of the cross. And there is only one meeting place. Again, a lot of people say, this is ridiculous. You say Jesus is the only way. All religions are basically the same. Why is your religion right? You're terrible, you're narrow, you're bigoted. Okay, give you a story. Suppose you and I had an appointment, 9.30 tomorrow morning. And I said, okay, I will be in Trafalgar Square, just in front of the National Gallery, Tomorrow morning, 9.30. And, and you say, yeah, I'll be there. But suppose you wake up Monday morning and you say, you know, that was very bigoted of Colin to expect me to go to the Trafalgar Square National Gallery. I'm going to go to Parliament Square and wait for him there. <laughs> Are you going to meet me? No. In these days of mobile phones and all the rest of it, Uber taxis, we could sort it out. But that's not the point of my illustration. Now suppose you went home disgusted and disappointed, went to your friend and said, Colin Dye is unreliable. He promised to meet me at 9.30. He didn't, don't ever go to Kensington Temple again. All that kind of stuff. All right? And your friend says, well, where did he say he'd meet you? Oh, he told me he'd meet me in Trafalgar Square. Did you go? No. Why didn't you go? I think it was very narrow and bigoted of him to expect me to go there. I wanted to go somewhere else. So I'm, I'm making something ridiculous, just absolutely out, outrageously ridiculous. But the point is, for very good reason, God has said, this is the meeting place at the foot of the cross. And the reason is, where else would you find a savior? Who else is God incarnate sacrificed for sin. Who else not only died but rose again from the dead? Search the annals of history. Go from Plato, Socrates, right the way through to Wittgenstein or Freud or any other person in the world, every other religious leader. No other philosophy, no other teaching, no other religious message has anything like this at all. Only one name given by God from heaven whereby we must be saved. <laughs> so it's not bigoted. It's just how it is. It's how it is. Truth by very definition is narrow. Where will I meet you tomorrow? Somewhere in London. That's not going to help. Doesn't matter wherever you'll be, I'll find you. No, 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 no. You have to be specific. And God is so full of love. He's worked, done so much to ensure this meeting place is now. Be sure, meet me at the cross. That's where I'll be waiting for you. That's where my love is. That's where my presence is. That's where my forgiveness is. The blood of Jesus and only the blood of Jesus can cleanse from every sin. Yeah. Amen and amen. All right, so it all comes down to receiving this by faith. And what does that mean in fact? You remember before the wages of sin is death? You think I'm going to try and earn my way to God? You are trying to get yourself saved. You are trying to save yourself. That's where most of us, if not all of us, were before. Even those who didn't believe in God, that doesn't really matter, I'll be all right. I can trust in myself, okay? The other side of the cross is trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. And the big decision is to transfer your trust from yourself 
to Christ and to say, I give up trying to save myself. I don't depend on myself for my salvation or anybody else. I put my trust in Jesus and what he did for me. Remember RT, every service says, suppose you were to die tonight and stand before God and he was to ask you, why should I let you come into heaven? He may. And you were to say, uh, what, would you, what would your answer be? It's all about who you're trusting in. This isn't just about belief, it's about trust. You believe that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead. You believe that Jesus died in your place and you put your trust in that. And this transfer of trust is the thing that brings you into the kingdom of heaven. And we'll pray about that just in a moment. Now, time is gone. Please be patient with me. What I'd like to do is just go through the brief outline just so that you can take this away with you and it'll be on the paper. So what I want you to do is to get to know how to present the gospel. And uh, I've chosen a few principles here and summarize it this way. First of all, it begins with God, the God of justice and love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that's where we begin. The gospel is about God. You can't start with yourself. You start with God, the God who is just, the God who loves you, the God who made you. Amen. The theistic God of the Bible. Secondly, sin. Sin is what separates you. Separates you from God in an unsolvable separation, an unbridgeable gap. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then you talk about the penalty. Death equals eternal separation from God. And this isn't unloving of God, it's the nature. If you have light and darkness and you choose the darkness, don't complain that the lights aren't on. You've got to step into the light. You can't say, God is so unfair, I'm in darkness and he won't shine on me. He shines where the light shines. You go where the light is. Penalty for sin. The cross, the only place where uh, the sin problem is solved. Jesus died for us, paid our debt. And then faith, receiving the gift of eternal life by believing in Christ. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. It's not just intellectual faith. It is believing in. Not just believing that, but believing in. Believing in him. Putting your trust in him.